and welcome to Undercover Dad, a podcast that looks at 1970s Detroit through the experiences of an undercover ATF agent. I'm your host, Joe Vince, and assistant editor with Officer Magazine. This podcast is a time capsule that provides a snapshot of what it was like to be in law enforcement and work undercover in a major U.S. city over 50 years ago. We'll see how far police work has come in that time, and if we're doing our job right, we hope you're able to take away a few lessons that you can apply to your work in the field today. This is also a passion project for me because the undercover agent providing those firsthand experiences happens to be my dad, Joe Vince Jr. Back in the 1970s, he was an agent just beginning his nearly 30-year career with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. They hadn't added explosives to the name yet, working first in Detroit and then in Flint, Michigan. During his time with the agency, he also worked in Omaha, Nebraska, Washington, D.C., Miami, and Chicago. He helped create ATF's Crime Gun Analysis Branch and became its first chief before retiring. Currently, he teaches at Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg, Maryland, and he is also the president of Crime Gun Solutions, a company he co-founded. With the introductions out of the way, let's jump right into things. We left off uh, last episode uh, talking about uh, one of the keys to good undercover work is being yourself. And 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 you had made the comment that uh, for you, uh, if you wore a three-piece suit to buy, uh, to go undercover and buy heroin, that made sense because that was who you were and you were going to be more convincing. So... I, I, I want to ask, um, who was Joe Vince Jr. back then? Well, like I said before in the past episodes, you are continually learning. I hope today I'm continually learning. And we didn't have the training that law enforcement has today that's much improved since it was back then. Uh, and in some regards, it was non-existent in some areas. And so what you did is you learned from others, which, which wasn't bad, but when you're working undercover, you can't, you, you can't replicate what somebody else does because hopefully that that's being them. Uh, I think one of the, <laughs> uh, unfortunately the agents deceased now, but uh, recently, but one of the, the nicest comments I think he ever got was the fact that the defense attorney told the judge that it wasn't fair that the, the ATF agent uh, uh, didn't act like an agent at all undercover. And that, mm. that just wasn't fair to him. Mm. Uh, so uh, part of it is that I think uh, uh, a lot of criminals uh, have a sixth sense, a street sense, which makes a lot of sense. If you understand what I'm trying mm -hmm. to go to, because that's what they live in. They live in with people that are phonies. And so when you would come on to be phony, they could see right through that. If you came on to be yourself, then that that's for real. And that's the whole objective being something that is credible, not something that's make believe or, or Hollywood or anything like that. It, it just who you are. And then you're going to have to decide whether they buy that or not. And if they don't, you know, you want to come over like, uh, okay, Hey, you know, I'll just go somewhere else. But uh, uh, that works the best. 
so who were you as a person then? What uh, how would you describe yourself, your personality? And where do you and, and some of that too? Um, talk a little bit about uh where you were coming from, both um from geographically where you were raised, but also where you started out in law enforcement. Right. Uh, you know, I came off a sheriff's office, only being on there about a year and a half, and a tremendous experience. And that but was again, in that was in that, Northeast uh, Ohio, Trumbull County, Ohio. Yes, and you know, I I would never want to ever not have that experience. I think it's a wonderful experience, and I tell a lot of my students that that's a great great way to get into law enforcement is through uniform policing because you're meeting different people every single day and you're getting to communicate with them. And that's essential. But uh, for me, you know, there was a lot of organized crime in that area. Uh, but as a road deputy in, in Trumbull County, which is, which was very much a rural area as well as a couple of big cities there. Uh, you know, I, I didn't experience a lot of that. So going to Detroit uh, where they did have organized crime, uh, but knowing about organized crime, growing up with it uh, in a community, uh, having kids I went to school with whose parents were in organized crime, I had a little bit of feel for that. But the one thing I knew is I wasn't going to change my baby face. I mean, I just it was what I was in the 20s and I wasn't going to look like, uh, you know, somebody that just got out of prison. So I, I, I played on that, that, you know, I'm doing this you know, my dad sent me or that kind of thing and mm -hmm. where it made sense again. And, and I could talk the talk. And a lot of times, you know, it was Vinny this and Vinny that and, and people bought into it. And you, you came from um, a, a, a steel town, uh working class uh, type of environment. Um, you know, how did that uh, play into um how you did your work and how you you related to people yes i, I think that being from uh young outside of youngstown ohio which was uh, very much uh, an organized crime town really was a was an area in between pittsburgh and uh chicago cleveland where uh it was like a free area there were people there but uh everybody could come there and party and and then go away they didn't want trouble however yeah, in the in the sixties, um, uh, there was some uh, activity about who had the gambling rights and so forth, and they had forty seven unsolved bombings, and that's when Robert Kennedy sent every federal agency under the sun in there to shut business down, and then the two bombers were found in the river, uh, saying, "Okay, we got the message enough." Uh, so you know, I dealt with that and knew that 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 was involved. I mean, you couldn't not know that, so. Um, there was that subculture that I was aware of, uh, but Detroit was different. Here you had a huge metropolitan city, probably at the time, I'm going to say it was the third largest city in the country, third or fourth, something like that. And uh, extremely, extremely wealthy area. You have to remember that, uh, of course, the auto industry was big there and, and there were some other industries, but people there that worked in the audience industry uh, made big money. It wasn't just the mm -hmm. executives and a lot of the middle people uh, had, had great wealth and, and built huge houses in the city. 
that that weren't the Dodgers and the, and the Fords and those people, but still had, had a lot of money. And at that time, people were coming from all over the world to study the architecture in Detroit. And then you had all the underlining things of their organized crime, which they very much had there. Uh, gambling was big. Uh, they called uh, their after hours joints blind pigs, and they could be huge. Uh, I, I remember, you know, going to several of those with the, uh, I was assigned to the uh, Detroit police rackets and conspiracy squad, which was fantastic squad. What a, what a bunch of professional uh, police officers that you, you wouldn't meet anywhere. And, um, you know, they would have their own bodyguards there. Everybody got frisked coming in. If you had a gun, they gave you a tag and put it on a, on a board. When you went out, you got your gun back. But, uh, you know, it, so it was, it was big operation. It was big money and they control prostitution and some narcotics as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to a whole different environment and that's where, uh, one of the things I learned uh, was that if you go and just work in a precinct, you learn what's in that precinct. If you want to know what's going on in the whole city, um, the first uh, unit I worked with was um, the vice squad because mm -hmm. the vice squad worked the whole city. And so I got to learn somewhat of the city doing that. Uh, and then uh, uh, later on with the rackets conspiracy squad, where I did some other undercover there as well. What was some of, um, you know, when you get to Detroit and to, to Flint, um, outside of just the the sheer size of it, um, you know, every every uh, city sort of has its own personality. Um, you, you know, when um, uh, we lived in in South Florida. Um, that seemed at that time kind of had a slower pace than, say, the Washington D.C. area. Um, what was what was um, Detroit like um, at, at this time in the in the nineteen seventies? Well, in comparing what you just said to mm -hmm. Detroit, Miami at the time was you know the cocaine capital. You had the cocaine cowboys. You had this. Uh, mystique that is certainly uh, the television uh, Miami Vice put around the world and had a, a gravity and a, and a and a reputation for that area based on that. Where Detroit, you had Motown, you had mm -hmm. you had uh, you know people people living the good life. This was the heyday, one of the heydays of the auto industry. Matter of fact, uh, when I got transferred, that's when they had their big downturn in in '79. Uh, but before that, it was a booming place. And, uh, you know, if you worked in the factory, you had tremendous benefits, you had good pay uh, and, and all those things. So uh, there was a lot of money going on, a lot of construction. Uh, but again, you had people that worked in factories that, that worked hard, but they played hard too. And then you mm -hmm. had the, the underlining uh, uh, bad areas, the, uh, uh, the housing projects that they had, the high rises at the time. And, and and some poorer places and that's where a lot of gang activity of that day uh, occurred uh, and there was a lot of violence as well uh, nothing mm -hmm. to what it's like today but it was it was growing up and it was it was going to increase especially in the 80s and you you've talked a little bit about uh the types of of crimes you you were investigating um were there anything that 
um, you were working on that was sort of um, a signature of that time period that you don't see much of today? Um, that or, or that was um, unique uh, to the area? Well, I, I would say, you know, the gambling activity was much different there then mm -hmm. than it is today because we've legalized gambling. I'm not saying there is another gambling out there. That's certainly not, that certainly is the case, but it's legalized today. So uh, they had in Youngstown, they had in, in, in Detroit, uh, the numbers racket in, in Youngstown, it was called the bug. And now you think mm -hmm. about it, you've got thousands of people, I think in the heyday, uh, the Rouge River plant uh, Ford factory had uh, well over 100,000 employees there. And so they would have numbers runners there and you could buy your number, uh, 50 cents mm -hmm. uh, for a number. But you think, you know, guys were putting in more than 50 cents. But even so, if you had 50 cents every day from every one of those guys in the factory, that was a lot of money. And uh, it was based on uh, racetrack winnings at, at different tracks and that you could calculate what the number is by picking those. And that would be the, the three digit number that, that won. Um, the only thing I can say back then in Youngstown at one time, I do know uh, that there was a, uh, a woman who became widowed. And even though she didn't play that week, she won the, the bug. So okay. there was mm -hmm. some ethics back then, but, but you had that and you had, uh, you know, the, these the big gaming places where they had roulette and, and warehouses and, and, and houses that they had um, that were going quite strong, uh, in, especially on the weekends. And you brought up something, and I want to make sure I phrase this right, too. Is Detroit, also a factory town, uh, a working class town in a lot of ways. Um, all Although you, like you said, the you have this um, this influx of wealth because of the auto industry, um, but did did that was there a similar mentality? I guess um, uh, going into there than say if you had been starting out in Los Angeles um, or somewhere on the West Coast. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and you know Detroit also was big in heroin. Uh, they had some direct connections in there. There was a, a lot of heroin going around. That was a that was a big issue, and it was a big money maker for people. Um, one of my partners at the time arrested uh, probably the number two or three um, heroin dealers uh, for felon in possession, and he was sent away. And then a Supreme Court decision got him out, but he was able to. He had to have guns. I mean, if you're a heroin dealer, you have to have guns. Yeah. Not that you're worried about the police, but you're worrying about your competition killing you and uh, and others. So, um, uh, you know, th this this was big time business where uh, but it wasn't as sophisticated uh, as as other crimes, because I mean, when we raided his house, he had uh, suitcases full of money underneath his bed. So, I mean, that that's that's not sophistication. On the other hand, he bought record stores and dry cleaners and land in the Bahamas and all kind of other things. Of course, he died young, too. Um, but, uh, you know, this is this is what it, what it was going on then. And it was something that when the shootings started and started climbing, uh, it, it brought out some other 
viciousness in the city, such as armed robberies. And uh, one of the things was uh, people that were on the expressways that would break down. They were subject to being uh, robbed and, and shot. And so the Detroit Police Department had a program, and I can't think of the name right now. It had a, an acronym name. But the, the idea was that they would put decoy officers there uh, walking the expressway with a gas can. Now they have cover teams. And then when they were, somebody attempted to rob them, of course, they stopped that. Uh, that did have a chilling effect on that type of crime. So you, you had all areas of crime. It wasn't just organized crime. It was street crime that was heavy. Um, and, and guns and shootings were now starting to take a, a, a big uh publicity now they were they were hitting it was rising numbers and well into the 80s what was there a, a an assignment a case that uh you were working early on one of your first ones where um it, it to you it just sort of announced itself as like this this is different this is um it, it's a whole new world and and this is what it's going to be like working um undercover in detroit well uh one of the things just to go back and mm -hmm. set this when i was with uh, working with records conspiracy squad i i really got uh a lot of training and expertise in uh surveillance they were unbelievable at that i mean uh, and, and I think that even the big racketeers knew they were following them and they never, they never, never saw them at all. Uh, and uh, uh, I was on a surveillance in a dumpster uh, outside a warehouse to get uh, probable cause for a warrant uh, on a, on a, a blind pig gambling after hours gambling place uh, in December, which we froze. But, you know, you go through this, and you experience what it takes to do the job and do it well. And then, of course, everything that goes with that. And I think that's what people just don't understand. It's not um, you know, just the leading up to the case and getting the information and executing a search warrant. Then that's when the real work starts with all the paperwork you have to do and get this into court. Uh, so um, that, that set the groundwork there. And then um, I uh, was assigned even though it was in the Detroit office to work in the, um, in the uh, Oakland County, which is North of Detroit in the Pontiac area, which is another um, uh, place where uh, uh, automakers, obviously Pontiacs were there. Uh, and, um, but it was also another very wealthy area uh, that was different. It, it had more suburbs, uh, but, uh, you know, in itself, it has this problem with the heroin and, and other crimes. And when I got to work um, a little undercover, I was given a chance uh, to meet uh, an informant, introduced me to uh, a guy that was a multi-convicted felon and was selling guns on the street. So I got a chance to buy those and make that case. And then I started to form, okay, I, I can do this. What's works best. Uh, and you can never go by after you arrest uh, uh, one of these bad guys to say, you know, how was I that, that <laughs> but they, cause they would always say, well, I knew you were a copy. I knew yeah. you were an agent. You know, I knew mm -hmm. you were, well, if you did, then why the hell did you sell yeah. me all this crap? But uh, uh, you know, you, you can tell yourself on what you can do. And then uh, there was another uh man who owned a restaurant and uh, 
uh, I got a chance up there going a few times. I'd heard he was, he was taking in stolen guns and selling guns all over. And, uh, just by going in there a few times and talking to him and, you know, from the counter as a, as a customer. And then, you know, started talking about guns. And so once he started to know me going in there, um, he started trusting me and then the sale started till we led up to executing search warrants on his business and his house and, and recovering a lot of guns in that area. And I, I think the difference now too, I think we should bring this in in a little retrospective to, to today is the fact that back then we didn't have the internet. So it would be hard for them to really check on you to see who you are. Whereas mm -hmm. today, <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Today, it's much easier uh, for people to check one, uh, one story out and see who they are, because it's there. It's and it's mm -hmm. extremely accessible. I want to go back to something you said, um, and it, uh, it it's the three Ds here. Um, you were working undercover. In Detroit, in a dumpster, in December. <laughs> yes. What? All those three, when you put them together, do not sound like like fun. What? What was that like? Being out in the cold, um, and being in a less than desirable place to have to to do this um, surveillance. Well, I tell you, I, I do remember being extremely cold and we, I mean, I bundled up for it, but after a while that didn't help and you're in a metal container uh, and <laughs> that was not fun. But what we, we had, uh, which was Vietnam era night, night vision goggles. We were using those and we could pry the, uh, the lid up and we had to take notes down about what comings and goings and uh we took uh, photos and uh, license plate numbers etc um uh, to what was going on and and being able to look not only in the doorway in the parking lot but through the windows and exactly see what was going on that's what gave us the probable cause for the warrant and, and this was uh for uh guns or was well, this... the, the warrant itself, the search warrant was for gambling and oh, okay. uh, right. the after. But once we got in there, of course, you know, everybody that did have a gun um, but was most likely a convicted felon. So that was a case for us as well. Well, and it was nice at those places that they they check the guns for you at a time. You can just uh, pick them off the, the peg and, and go. Yeah, not, not everyone did that, but, you know, there were some that. Uh, again, it, it all depends. Uh, th this particular one, the clientele, you know, you had to be invited. It wasn't mm -hmm. something where the other ones, these after hours joints, they were letting everybody in. If you, as long as you had a few bucks and, and uh, you know, you're going in there to spend your money. But when you do that, now you're, you're letting in as they would, you know, I guess the riffraff of the day. <laughs> And that would cause fights and they didn't want that. You know, we, we, we don't need to have any attention put on us. We're trying to do this without, uh, you know, having the, the police notice us and then you're going to come in the act stupid here. So, I mean, they were, they were pretty tough. And if they threw you out, you weren't coming back in because you were hurting. And it, it, because uh, just like any business for, for these criminals, the bottom line is the bottom line. 
Um, Absolutely. It's making money. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, I, I learned that big time in Youngstown. I mean, it was the, you know, the idea is you got to pay by the rules. And if you're not chucking in the way you're supposed to, then we're going to give you one warning and then next time we'll kill you. What were some of the, um, you talked about these blind pigs. Um, were there other, other types of elements that um, were different from your experience, your law enforcement experience at the time that you were seeing firsthand um, and um, that, um, I, you know, I don't want to say opened your eyes, but it was like, wow, this is, this is something different. This is something new um, or, or even just new for everyone. Like you saw, you were seeing the growth of, of these things pop up as you're doing your job. Well, what you see is it's on, everything's on a grander scale. There's okay. much more money there. Uh, there's more people there. So that's where it comes into. You, you just have, uh, there, there's more of a clientele that can spend the big money, has the big money. Mm-hmm. It, it's just on, um, on a much, much, much larger scale. So you can't, that's why you can't, when you were asking about LA or Miami, mm-hmm. you can't really equate those. They all have different atmospheres. The, the, the singular thing that, that they all have in common is making money. That's the bottom line. And, and as my dad, who was a police officer, your grandfather uh, said, if you look at, you know, it's not about the money, it's the money. So follow the money. And, and he was right. That that's, that's the whole bottom line for all of this. How are we going to make money? And many times, like we're talking in gambling prostitution, it's providing something that the public wants and it, it's illegal and we're going to provide it so that they get it. And it goes back, you know, to the depression and all that, but it, it, it's different. And, and, um, We'll have to see how this gambling experiment is going to go too, but it's, it's, it's relatively new and see how that pans out um, and, and takes it away from the criminal element or, or doesn't. We'll, we'll see. Mm-hmm. I, I noticed that some countries that have legalized uh, um, narcotics uh, have since rescinded some of that because of the problems that they had from that. So again, um, only time will tell, and it's too early yet to tell. There hasn't been any real studies on that yet that I know I'm aware of. You know, we're not, um, I think we're sort of, um, there's a sort of, it goes without saying, but um, in, in doing the undercover work, as, as much as it is as it is to be yourself, I imagine that um you also need to know the city and not just like which streets intersect with what but like you were talking about the atmosphere of it um to be sort of a cliche the pulse of the city um when you're new to it uh what and you've got to um you know be in there as if maybe you'd been there all your life or at least have a good understanding. What did you do to um, get to know Detroit? Well, that's why I went and worked with the vice squad because, and and again, this is the, the, um, 
probably what what uh, negative for federal agents who transfer around is you don't get to, to see the city and know it that well if you're only there like i was only there for three years and got transferred to flint michigan which i knew much better uh, uh because it was a smaller city to learn as well but you know a, a police officer he knows the city sometimes like the back of his hand and now that could be somewhat of a detriment if you're working undercover because more people will get to know you depending on where you're working. But uh, uh, that is an advantage. And so my advantage was always working with local police. They, they just knew the area, knew the uh, players. And uh, you know, that, that was my education from them. Um, you know, they, you know, and I was fortunate, you know, I was able to pick and choose who I could work with. Uh, so I, I made sure that it was people that I could trust. Now, you, you've talked about, um, we've talked about the, the types of crimes you were looking at and the scale of it. Um, tell me a little bit about, I guess, the, the types of people you were running into, um, the differences, uh, I guess the, the difference in the criminal element from say, Northeast Ohio to to Detroit. Well, again, I don't, I don't, you know, you've got your players, and I don't think mm -hmm. that uh, that changes much. Um, and and then the other thing is, you've got some people that you know it, it it is all about making money. They they really don't care what happens, and you see that today. I mean that that hasn't changed. The 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 criminals doing the same thing. We're we're not really anything different in that. I, I, I really don't see what I see now is more people having a propensity to and having the ability uh, with the types of weapons that they can get now to do much greater harm than they did back then. But, you know, evil's evil. And there are some evil people in this world. And greed does that. Uh, certainly when you are addicted to narcotics, that forces the issue. So I, I don't know that there is uh, much difference between uh, a lot of the organized crime people that were in Youngstown at the time. Uh, they might not have been as rich as some of the ones in Detroit uh, or New York or whatever, but, you know, they were doing the same thing and they were making lots of money. Now, now talk about um, some of the, I guess, career criminals that you were running into. Um you had told me about uh, one individual, uh, I think you um, were working with the Secret Service at the time, but um, uh, a guy when he you um, eventually arrested him, I mean, just was a, a student of criminals, so to speak. Um, you know, he, he read up on this and, and tried to make himself a, a better criminal. Yes, this was an unusual case, and it's it's another one who has uh, uh, you know aspirations for being a master criminal. That was, I mean, he had a library full of every type of crook that there was, and and, and uh, you know how they broke into things, and he would study these. Uh, he had um, window frames uh, in his basement uh, where he would practice cutting out glass not to uh, have the alarm go off in buildings. Um, he also uh, would think of various ways to kill people. Um, 
in assassinations. Uh, he had one that uh, when you sit on a, a toilet seat, he had there, uh, there would be an electric shock that would kill you with the, uh, with your wet feet on a mat or something. And, oh my God. and then, yeah. And then there was another one. I, I think he was making this up uh, for some guys didn't like his wife or something, but it was, who had a, one of those cosmetic mirrors with the light bulbs around it. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, he had black powder in there so that when you turned it on, it would just blow up on your face. So he did those weird things, but um, uh, it, it, it he, he, his big thing was doing big time burglaries, but he always did things. And it was like leaving a signature. He wanted the police to know it was him. Uh, and uh, because uh, like he would go in and uh, he went into this large department store and sold their security system and uh, or dismantled it and put it, you know, I mean, he, that, that to him was what he lived for this having this. And so, uh what the, there wasn't uh, my case was another agent's case, but uh, when we executed the the warrant um, the first time on his house, um, he he had was for firearms, and um, that's when it showed that this guy was really serious. Though he was going to have a shootout with us, and I know uh, having kicked in the door because I could hear him running away from the door, uh, running after him. And he got to this back bedroom. He turned around when I saw a shotgun. And that's probably the closest I told him. I'm going to, you know, one more move. He dropped it. Thank God, because I was squeezing the trigger. Uh, he was that close. And we, we got a bunch of guns. We got counterfeit money in trash bags that he was making up. Um, and um, stolen property, some narcotics. So he, and, and, you know, he just was somebody that uh, really wanted this. And he went to jail for five years, got out and was doing the same thing and got him with the gun again and went back and executed a warrant. Now that after that, I never heard what happened to him. But sometimes what you start to see with some of these criminals is they literally age out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, when you're 18 years old, you can steal stuff and jump the fence and run away. Uh, when you get to be 45, 50 years yeah. old, your butt's too big to get over the fence. Yeah. So they don't do those kind of thing anymore. And it's, you know, young people get mad and they, they try to smack the wall with the, their hand, they break their hand. And hopefully after that, that tells them maybe they shouldn't do that. And it's the same way with criminals. And they literally, they literally age out. So, uh, maybe that happened with him. I just never heard anything about him after that. Uh, did you usually run into uh, guys who took that kind of time to, for lack of a better phrase, study their craft, to improve upon their craft, as opposed to just impulsively doing whatever they can in the moment to to get the money? You know, that, that's funny you bring that up because uh, ATF keeps a library of, of bombings and silencers and things mm -hmm. along this line. Uh, and what you find is that, and even this goes back to ISIS, you know, they have their bomb makers and everything. And the reason is that they leave a signature and, it, and people say, well, they want to be, no, no, they leave a signature because it worked and didn't blow them up. <laughs> if it didn't blow their ass up, it's a good thing. I'm going to do it again. 
And so it, criminals are like this. If it worked, I'm going to continue to do it. And, and then when I get in jail because it didn't work, I'll talk with other idiots in there. And, okay, if I didn't do this, they'd have never caught me. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, but that that's what you start to see is that, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's human nature. If something works, people continue to do that. And, uh, and so you, you don't see uh, – you know, unless you're going into a different area, I'm not going to say that some criminals, you know, you, you got the TV shows, certainly in the movies, they plan all this out, but th- that's more rare than it, uh, than it is common. You mentioned um, in the confrontation with him, uh, you know, being close to where you would have had to use your weapon or worse that he would have used uh, his weapon on you. Um, when I was growing up, there was, uh, another anecdote you would tell me, which was about, um, meeting with the guy and, um, him suspecting that you might be an an undercover agent and, um, and, and him asking you that question with a crossbow. Yes. Uh, and, and again, I think there's different ways that criminals try to uh, certainly intimidate anybody they're dealing with, but to see if you're law enforcement and to, to see what reaction you have to things. And at the, tr- the time in the, in the Detroit area, it was pretty common, especially DEA had this and, and when when they were buying narcotics, there would be the, the, the seller. And there would be somebody behind him that would hold a gun on the guy buying it. And which it was a common practice. It, mm-hmm. it got to be common. Uh, and, um, but here in this case, um, I had an informant who I sent in and, and he bought a machine gun and came out and then introduced me. And uh, I bought some guns, but went back. And this is when, I don't know if he was trying to test me or just be funny or, or, or what, but he picked up a pistol grip crossbow and it had a deer arrow on it. And, you know, I had, had guns pointed at me, but, um, and of course, you know, you're dealing with guns and people are handing them around look at this, but you know, I, I, that intimidated me. I mean, I could just see my chest in the, on the wall behind me. Um, and then he put it down and, and after a conversation we had, and that, that was it. Uh, but uh, yeah, that, that was intimidating. That was, that was one time. Now, the interesting thing is he's trying to ingratiate me with him. And of course, while we're I'm buying these guns from him, he whips out his uh, KKK card. He's, I just want to, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan here, and maybe we can work some other things out together. Uh, which I, I thought this is going to be great for a jury to see, you know, a federal jury to see who your, what your true colors are. Well, in that situation, what are you doing to try to make sure he's convinced you're, you're also a lawbreaker? You know, uh, people start uh, talking about uh, embellishing and what I always tried to do is let them embellish their stories. And that's something that 
when you work undercover, you have to really learn early on. And it's hard for some agents later on, as I reviewed their case, young agents cases that worked undercover, I would tell them, I don't want to hear what you have to say. Quit talking. Let them talk. I want to hear what they have to say. And so I learned that very, let them talk, let them, you know, make themselves sound bigger and bigger talking about all the things they've done because that's great. I'm, I'm usually wired on these cases. I was wired. So we're recording it all. Uh, and that's what you want to do. And so, um, and I, and I, you know, I, I can't recall, um, me telling people I did things, but you know, I might've implied that, or were you aware of this? And like, it, well, I mean, it's implying, Oh yeah, I heard about that or whatever. Uh, so it, 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 but, but again, get, get them talking. Everybody wants to talk about themselves. So mm -hmm. make it easy for them to do that. Let them tell you all about it. At, uh, it kind of like, uh, the journalist trick, which is after, a, uh, someone answers the question, you leave the silence there and let them fill it in. And uh, instead of, of, of doing it yourself as the reporter let them talk more because usually the, that's when they they'll tell you the good stuff. Um, you know, that that's a oh. good point because silence is deafening. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, my biggest take was you look them in the eye and you smile and then boy, that they just can't help themselves after that. So in a lot of cases, it is, it, it it's getting, it's making sure they believe the vibe you're giving off, you, you know, that they, they, you may not have the, tell them the details, but they feel like, yeah, I, I get where he's coming from. I, he, he seems all right. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I don't think you want to get uh matter of fact, the criminals that um, I thought uh, were the most braggadocious were the the biggest idiots uh and and you know uh there was one guy uh that i went up to work undercover was further up in michigan uh, for this guy selling guns and and uh, i gave the i was this guy during the whole time we were dealing on these all these buys of guns he kept talking about you know if i ever see an atf agent i'm gonna kill him i'm gonna this i'm you know really bad and he was a big guy i mean he must have mm -hmm. been he was all of 250 280 pounds i mean he was no tiny guy and when the uh i gave the the cover team okay let's go you know hit it and they were coming in and i badged him he fainted <laughs> and the cover team says what'd you do to him i said i didn't do anything and they so help us get him up i, I said throw some water on i'm not gonna <laughs> try to pick that guy up but yeah i mean what's that tell you yeah so that and that's the thing too. I get uh, being surprised in those types of ways too. When you're um, when you're you're working cases, um, you know, and they're uh, again another. Um, in fact, this is one that um, I, I just recently heard from you of uh, trying to apprehend. Um, uh, 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 a suspect who um in his off time uh while incarcerated um certainly took care of himself oh yeah that was uh 
that was an interesting case because this guy had been in prison oh probably more years than than he was out and but he was always committing crimes and um this particular one uh he met some people in flint michigan who came down from the alaska pipeline and they had stolen dynamite there and they were selling it so he bought a bunch of the dynamite and his idea was that he was going to extort money from a large grocery chain and so he went in there and planted the dynamite in the store and then um, called the store up and, and said i'm gonna you know blow the place up if yeah and i'm gonna this is just to let you know i'm gonna send more back so he started that uh and we got information uh, about him and um, uh, had a couple of associates that finally confessed and then we were able to get a warrant. But when we went to interview him, uh, the guy just was, uh, you know, massive and, and, and um, quite in, try to be intimidating. Um, and then when we went back to get the warrant, he just, was able to throw agents around and and police officers like we were paper bags until finally one police officer drew his gun and said, blow your kneecap off and then he stopped and what had happened how this the that all started is because he was cuffed and it was like i'm not going back to jail and he literally split the cuffs and started fighting and and when we interviewed him after that at the in the police station is uh you know i asked him i said well you know geez you're in great shape how'd you get as big as you are and everything and he he said well you know i did box and he was a heavyweight champion in jackson prison but he said i was in solitaire so much i had nothing to do so i did push-ups i said well how many push-ups can you do in an hour he says i i think i think i did two thousand in an hour which i thought was but that's what he said so I won't dispute him, but he was huge and I've never seen anybody stronger. You can find the Undercover Dad podcast at Podbean, Apple, and Spotify. And while you're doing that, also check out Officer Magazine's new Officer Roll Call podcast. Stay safe and see you next time.